it's just a game For I've seen other teams and it's never the same When you're born in Chicago, you're blessed and you're healed The first time you walk into Wrigley Field Our heroes wear pinstripes, heroes in blue Give us the chance to feel like heroes too Forever we'll win and if we should lose We know someday we'll go all the way Yeah, someday we'll go all the way We are one with the Cubs, with the Cubs we're in love. Yeah, hold our head high as the underdogs. We are not fair weather, but foul weather fans. Like brothers in arms in the streets and the stands. There's magic in the eye, in the old scoreboard. The same when I stared at as a kid keeping store. In a world full of greed, I could never want more. And someday we'll go all the way. Yeah, someday we'll go all the way. Yeah, someday we'll go all the way. Yeah. Fathers, fathers, they grew Spiritual feeling if I ever knew And if you ain't been, I am sorry for you When the day comes for that last winning run And I'm crying and covered in fear I look to the sky and know I was right To think someday we'll go all away Yeah, someday we'll go all away
From high atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Polly's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? What's cracking? Once again, back is the incredible, the pond animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kagalaki, half man, half podcast machine. Back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, both sides up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players. And their stories. What's juicy, yo? What's juicy, you cement freaks? Thanks for dropping by this week from all my OG lieutenants who have followed my audio, video, and social media endeavors throughout the years. To all the new school pod surfers who have happened to barrel up in this wave right here and join my tight knit baseball family as we take our weekly historical dive into baseball history. Backwards K-Pod is available on all podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your shows. Or you can go to my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com, to listen to any and all of our shows in the always-expanding Vaults of Archives. And at some point, I want to get some things rolling on that website there. Uh, besides just having our shows there, we got a lot of stuff coming. Uh, Keychains, t-shirts, cups it's all it's all happening baby it's all happening and uh thankfully i got you know six foot seven inch gorilla man child producer to help me with these types of things these days i got 12 gauge productions mr gauge gian what's up brother how you doing this week hey man i'm doing well sorry i just had a Slight problem with our sound effects there, but no worries. You know, we're working through it. <laughs> That's we all do good. We got to do. It's all good, bro. How are you, man? I know you're feeling a little under the weather. Uh, your voice sounds pretty uh, horrible. And, you know, you're probably the one guy on the planet that sounds got a worse <laughs> voice than me right now. So uh, I'm going to let you have some fun with the production side tonight. I'm not going to talk to you too much, but I want to, you know, thank you for that intro, man. That, that Eddie Vedder is just amazing. I don't know if you know this backstory to that, but he actually wrote that song for Ernie Banks. He performed it live in uh, Wrigley Field. I believe that was 2013. So it's three years before the Cubs will, uh, you know, finally break through and win that World Series. Uh, so I just want to say great job on that intro, man. Thank you very much. Uh, can't wait to talk about Mr. Cub, but do that. People who are still uh, making donations to the show and the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm humbled by this audience and the love they've shown with this grassroots effort here. Uh, John Cop out of Chicago, Illinois, as well as Sherry Barr. They made more than generous cash donations to the cause this week. And Sherry even messaged me. She said, I can't wait to see you pass Rogan one day. <laughs> and look, I-, I hate fundraising. I absolutely loathe it. I-, 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 I joked that one day I would love to be bigger than Rogan and not have to use this you know, fundraising method. Uh, so thank you, Sherry. I really appreciate reading that. Now, uh, look, Joe is huge. I- I don't need to be that big. Just big enough where, you know, me and uh, 12 Gauge over here, big techs, where we can generate revenue through other streams. But, look, 
The audience stepped up, no questions asked, and I love you guys for it. And the Cubs, my damage creations, they going over very well. We got t-shirts, beach towels, uh, keychains, all kinds of things in the works. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks, bro. If you would like to donate anything from a dollar on up, you can send by Venmo to Jake-Robinson-134. Again, that's Venmo, uh, Jake-Robinson-134. And uh, some of you, you may deal with uh, PayPal. So it's the same deal. A dollar on up, please send to PayPal. I'm uh, DiamondSnakeJake at gmail.com. I'm both appreciative and excited about the future of this comedy. I have the best fans and podcasts to thank for it. Everything I've always dreamed about doing in life, it's it's happening because of you. And thank you, thank you, thank you. I got a lot of great feedback about the president and the baseball show from last week. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I learned a lot, you know, myself doing that show. And one thing is for sure, Cements, baseball is my passion in life. I'm going to be coming through every Tuesday with that free Baseball smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Pedro Martinez. Now, before we do this week's show, I want to take a brief moment here to pay homage to a fallen star in our baseball universe this week, Captain Sal Bando. Three-time World Series champ, finally succumbed to his five-year battle with cancer on Friday, January 20th, at his home in Wisconsin. He played 16 seasons with the Oakland A's and Milwaukee Brewers. He starred at Arizona State University in college, and he was a 1965 College World Series Tournament MVP. He led the dynastic, dynamic Oakland A's to three consecutive World Series titles as the team's captain from 1972 to 1974. He spent the last five seasons of his playing career with the Milwaukee Brewers when he became the first free agent signed by the Brew Crew in uh and that was after the 1977 season. The first season in Milwaukee, he leads the club to their first winning season in franchise history, as well as its first uh, postseason team in 1981. After his playing career was over, the Brewers hired him as the sixth GM in team history from 1991 to 1999. He also had a brother, Chris, who played catcher with the Tribe for eight years. In an interview done five years ago, with former ASU catcher Zach Serbo. Uh, he was, Sal was asked, what is the difference between playing college baseball at a championship level and major league baseball at a championship level? And this is what the captain had to say about that. Here to your time as a major leaguer. You know, uh, I'm all often asked which one was more meaningful and I tell everyone they felt the same when you win it and you're in college it's the greatest feeling and when you're in professional baseball and win it's the same feeling so no more no less but great feelings and I would be remiss if we didn't at least in part watch those levels on there uh, add Captain Sal Bando to our collection of ballplayers here so let's take a look at Salvatore Leonard Bando's stats here. Uh, let's see here. What do we got? Born February 13th, 1944 in Cleveland, Ohio. Drafted by the Kansas City A's in the sixth round of the 1965 MLB Amateur Draft out of ASU. 
Had a career war of 61.5, 2019 games, 8,289 plate appearances, 982 runs scored, 1,790 hits, 289 were doubles, 38 were triples, and he dropped dumb 242 times with 1,039 RBI. 254, 352, 408, career slash, 760 OPS, and a 119 OPS plus, 2,881 career total bases. And that's good, solid ball play right there, folks, statistically speaking. But he was a captain. He brought more than just stats to the table. He brought intangibles, four-time All-Star, three times in the top five MVP voting. Just a fantastic leader. So, Captain Sal, rest in peace, Godspeed, and time will not dim the glory of your deeds. The baseball universe mourns your loss. And I don't mean to start the show on a downer, you know. The snake likes to come in hot traditionally, but these things happen every once in a while. Unfortunately, it seems to happen more and more these days with my childhood baseball heroes. And, uh, it's a clear indicator of my mortality, as well as my personal trip on the turn here as I begin to look at my own back nine here. So, if you're a younger seaman who doesn't know much about Sal Bando, I implore you to go down that Captain Sal rabbit hole and see where it takes you. Now, very sad news. Rest in peace. Now, fortunately for us, we will quickly pick up the pace this week after this awful loss as I'll be doing a deep dive into probably the most optimistic baseball player who ever lived, Mr. Cub Ernie Banks. With the advent of social media, loyalty is no longer respected here in the 21st century. If Ernie were an active player today, blessed with the same career he had back in his day, he would probably be ridiculed and mocked. There would be memes every day about how Ernie is wasting his career. You know, he needs to get out of Chicago and south the Yankees or L.A. or Houston. Because for many fans, if you ain't winning rings as a superstar, well, then, of course, your whole career is a waste. But today's fan, they, they don't care if you're happy where you are. They don't care if your family enjoys the community and is making roots. I mean, that's stupid. Who cares about your family, dude? They surely don't care about the athletes willing to do the work for years in one uniform on a chance that it may happen. No. Fans are past that nowadays. I mean, that's so 20th century. You're expected to win, and if you can't do it there, you're supposed to grab the money and join a winning train. And if that doesn't work, then you can sign with Steve Cohen and the Mets because, you know, well, why not? Chase that ring, Ernie. And before anyone gives me grief saying I'm a liar, look, look at Mike Trout. And to some extent, we see it now with Otani, right? Every few weeks, there are memes that come out lamenting how horrible Mike Trout and Shohei Otani have it playing Major League Baseball for the Anaheim Angels. And then there are like these chorus of trolls co-signing on that horse shit. Ernie would have been dogged in today's social media world, but I guarantee, I guarantee you unequivocally that Ernie never regretted one day of his baseball career on the, on the north side for the Cubs. Now, I'm sure he never felt like his career was wasted because he never went to the show. Ernie knew baseball was a gift 
When he was a kid, the thought of playing pro ball with the white boys was a pipe dream. Through his positive energy, determination, and humble heart, Ernie made it to the top of the baseball mountain, and he is forever proof that you don't need rings to validate your greatness or the impact you had on others around you or even the impact you had on a city and a nation. Everyone loves Ernie because he's Ernie. I mean, even White Sox fans showed him reverence. Even the Cardinals fan knows a good dude when they see one and they respect him, even if he's wearing the blue pinstripes. Like Ernie, most of us in the real world, we don't win the majority of the time. At least in my demographics. But you keep trying, right? You keep pushing. And I'm sure Ernie would agree that we fall so that we know how to get back up on our fucking feet. And he understood that everyone could win. You know, that everyone can't win the World Series in their careers. Not even all the great ones. And Ernie was amazing. But Ernie also understood that not everyone can play Major League Baseball either. Like 1% of the fucking world can do it at the highest level. And many of them can't do it so well. So, while the Cubs came up short in their goals while Banks was doing his thing, Ernie was grateful to play baseball for a living as a black man in a slowly changing country. In fact, the sun is shining, the bleacher bums are fired up, the Wrigley Ivy is lush in the warm Chicago sun, the city loves Jake the Snake since day one. Like Ernie, you have always been loyal to me, Chicago. So, let's call all aboard, I see the catcher is coming down. And let's get this runaway freight train back on course. As I'm ready to preach the gospel of Ernie Banks. Let's wait till. And so, my fellow baseball congregation of Seamheads, if you'd like to turn to the book of Ernie in your Bible, chapter 2, verse 4, if you would. Mr. Cobb, Ernie Banks. Born January 31st, 1931 in Dallas, Texas. That's your side of the woods, huh? Damn straight. Lids, uh, you know, an icon coming out of Dallas, playing baseball. He was the second eldest of 12 children from Eddie and Essie Banks. His father, Eddie, was quite the fan of baseball, and he was also a fine player. And after participating in uh, World War I, Eddie came home and began playing semi-pro sandlight ball for the Dallas Black Giants. His father, Eddie, was the team catcher, and they would travel to places like Kansas City, Shreveport, Oklahoma City, and other cities, you know, like that, to play ball during the summer. And once his father, Eddie, had finished his baseball career, He then took over as a chain store porter for the next 25 years. But the force was strong with Eddie. He was baseball crazy. And he was always trying to push his love for the game onto his children. Now, believe it or not, it was a hard sell on Ernie in the beginning. Can you believe that? 
one of the most outgoing baseball players ever. The mere sight of him back in the day was like the vision of baseball Buddha. All that you would want and expect from your favorite athlete. That was Ernie Banks. The complete embodiment of the game of baseball. Well, you know, as a youngster, it wasn't really his bag. You know, his father gave him a glove when he was turned eight. And his father would always try to get Ernie to play catch with him after work. And, like I said, it was a tough sell, literally. And he had to bribe Ernie with dimes every day just to play catch. And soon, the future Mr. Cub, the nine-year-old Ernie Banks, he's kind of digging playing catch. And by now, sensing a spark that's been lit under his son, Eddie buys Ernie a bat. Now, playing catch was cool, but from day one, Ernie fell in love with hitting a baseball. And, god damn, I know that feeling. I mean, the first time I hit a home run, it was like sex. I, I just wanted to do it again and again. So, Ernie's dad is teaching him the fundamentals of hitting. And Ernie took to it like a fish in water. In fact, Ernie and his dad wound up, you know, breaking a lot of the neighbor's windows with batted baseballs during this time. And the father and son were always walking home, trying to get their story straight to give the mama banks. And Ernie once upon that his dad nearly went broke from all the windows he had to pay for. The introverted and shy Ernie, he finished his way uh, through life. He attended Booker T. Washington High School. You know where that's at? Hell uh, yeah, I know where that's at. How far is that from you? Probably five minutes up the road. Unbelievable. Played Ernie Banks went to school. Did you, did you, you didn't even know that, did you? Take that oh. back to Dallas with you. Oh, I will. I've blessed you. You've been blessed, my son. I've been blessed. Walk okay, with God. He excelled in basketball and football, but <coughs> back then the school didn't offer high school baseball. So to keep his eagle eye together, Ernie played a lot of softball in high school. While well, a dude named Bill Blair spotted Banks one day on a softball field, dropping dong, one swing after another. So this Bill Blair dude says to himself, I bet this kid can murder baseball. So, even though Ernie is a sophomore in high school that doesn't have a baseball team, Blair approaches Ernie's parents about letting their son try out for a traveling team based in Amarillo, Texas. How far is that from Dallas? About five hours. Heard. That's a trip. They were also joined by Johnny Carter, the owner of the Texas-based Detroit Colts, baseball team, which was basically a feeder organization for the Negro Leagues at the time. The two promised Ernie's parents they would look after him during the summer, and they promised to return him back home for his junior year in high school. So, this is 1947, the year that his idol, Jackie Robinson, who we'll be talking about next week, that's the same year he shattered the color line in baseball, and he's now playing in Montreal. And the realization of other black ball players joining Jackie, it's still a pipe dream at this point. Uh, there's still distrust there. Let's see if Jackie makes it, right? So the thought of, you know, Ernie playing in baseball, it still seems, you know, like universe is away to him. 
And the bottom line was Ernie was still remedial in his scope of baseball knowledge in 1947. Uh, he liked taking his father's chains, his bribes for playing catch. He loved to hit, but his swing, it, it had flaws. And until this point, he had only played with dudes much older than him. Many of the players he faced were well within their 30s or even the, their 40s. And they had so much more experience in the game of baseball and in life, of course. Well, he would go on the win the Colts starting shortstop position out of spring training. Ernie, who was still skeptical about himself and what he was capable of, he homered in his third at bat of the season. And from there on out, his confidence and love for the game slowly began to build as the Colts traveled through Texas, Nebraska, Oklahoma to play games. And for Ernie, the teenager, this was his first big adventure in life. And it sure beat the hell out of picking cotton or shining shoes or whatever other bullshit job he had. By now, Ernie is all in on this baseball thing. Banks returns to the Colts following his junior year in high school. In a game versus the Kansas City Stars, Ernie captures the eye of legendary Negro leaguer Cool Papa Bell who loved his unruffled poise as well as his ability to play the game of baseball. So, Cool Baba Bell, you know, he, he offers Banks a spot on the Kansas City Monarchs uh, Negro League team. And that's under the guise if he completes his senior year in high school. The Kansas City Ball Club, they offer $300 a month for Ernie to sign with the club. And with his parents' consent and blessing, he accepted the terms. And side note here, it's important for you to know that $300 a month in 1949 is the equivalent of $3,741 in today's economy. And his first three seasons with the Monarchs in 1950... Uh, Ernie played shortstop, batted 255. He also recalled those days as his baseball school days. And he was also offered the opportunity to barnstorm with Jackie Robinson's all-star team, which included players like Roy Campanella, Don Newcomb, Larry Delby. And they toured with the Indianapolis Clowns from the Negro Leagues in like this barnstorming tour. And not only did Banks make a little loot from the tour, about $4,000 in today's economy, but more importantly... Jackie was giving him tips on turning double plays, and, and Ernie just cherished his days spent on the field with his idol, Jackie Robinson. After the tour, Ernie was drafted by the U.S. Army, reported to Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas. He then reported to New Orleans for duty before shipping out to Germany for the remainder of his two-year hitch. He was discharged honorably in January of 1953. He was Immediately, upon his discharge, pursued by the Dodgers and the tribe. But Ernie headed straight to Kansas City to rejoin the Negro League Monarchs. And you see there, right? He's showing that loyalty spirit long before he's on the Cubs, right? Well, the only problem is by now, blacks are in the majors. And the Negro League's fan base was drying up as fans were now watching their heroes on the big stage in Major League Baseball. Interest in the Negro League brand, it was waning. The attendance began to plummet. 
And it was only a matter of time before this gifted shortstop, Ernie Banks, would find himself on a big league team. September 7th, 1953, the Chicago Cubs offered the Monarchs $20,000, which is a little more than three hundred grand today for the rights to Banks and pitcher Bill Dickey. Banks was then signed on an $800 a month contract by Chicago, which is about $9,000 today, and he made his Major League Baseball debut on September 17, 1953. Ernie never played a day in the minors. He played the last 10 games of the 1953 season with the Cubbies, and he didn't sit again until August 11, 1956, playing in his first 424 consecutive games of his career. By his second season in the big leagues, Banks has established himself as an elite player in the National League. He's now garnering national spotlight as he finished third in the NL with 44 home runs, fourth in RBI with 117. He had the number one building percentage at shortstop in all of baseball, 972, and he hit 295. In 1955, he makes the all-star team which would be his first of 14 Midsummer Classics. That season, Banks set the Major League record for Grand Slams in a season when he launched five that year for the Cubs. The record-breaking uh, last one coming off the arm of rival Cardinals hurler Lindy McDaniel. Ralph Kiner, who was always a fan of Ernie Banks, he once said, I love watching him as he would lightly wrap his fingers on the bat as he awaited the pitch. And he looked like he was playing the flute. It really is one of the most fascinating mannerisms by a baseball player. It's one of my favorites. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you should go onto YouTube if you're not sure what I'm saying and watch Ernie in the bags before the pitch comes and the way he uh, wraps his fingers on the bats. And, you know, it's just another one of those things that separates player X from player Y. And, you know, and it makes them memorable, right? So in 1958, 1959, Banks was awarded as the best baseball player in the National League when the writers voted him to back-to-back MVP crowns. The Sporting News as well recognized him by awarding him back-to-back NL Player of the Year honors. In 1958, he led the NL in home runs, RBI, slug. At 59, he paced the NL in RBIs. He ranked second in homers. And he only committed 12 errors that year, sporting a 985 fielding percentage. And both of those numbers set the shortstop standard at the top. While the Cubs were dreadful, Ernie excelled. Four straight 40 home run seasons, as well as four straight seasons over 100 RBI. And this wasn't seen by shortstops back then. Yeah, you had guys like Pee Wee Reese. He probably led the league with like 19 home runs. You didn't see shortstops display power. He's kind of, in a way, Cal Ripken before Cal Ripken. And Ernie professed to never once try to hit a home run. But as his game matured, he would swing at better pitches and sit on fastballs. But former Phillies pitcher Robin Roberts... He disagrees, and, and, and he has a slightly different take on Banks' batting philosophy. Noting that Banks was never the most patient hitter, and he said that Ernie doesn't take many bad pitches. He swings at all of them. 
1960. Banks is again pacing the National League with 41 home runs, 117 RBI. He also led the league in fielding percentage once again uh, to win his one and only gold glove of his career. And it's funny, uh, you know, he and Calvin Jr., so much alike. Their gloves were often ignored because of their offensive prowess at the shortstop position. I mean, Cal had four fucking errors one year and lost to Ozzie Guillen, who had 19 that same year. But I digress. By this time, the Cubs are starting to put out players, you know, around Ernie. Ron Santo came along midway through the 1960 season. He displayed power and potential. The next year, the Cubs brought on uh, Billy Williams, and he would win the Rookie of the Year award. So, in 1961, Cubs owner Philip Wrigley, P.K. Wrigley, he came up with some real cockamamie horseshit. <laughs> you know, when he decided that the sorry Cubs would no longer have one field manager, they would have an eight man staff, augmented by other coaches from within the organization, to be the team of managers by like committee, or as Mr. Wrigley called it, the College of Coaches. And I actually spoke on this in the History of Wrigley Field show that we did last year. And it's just a horrible idea. I mean, everyone knows that a naval battleship, it runs best when you have eight admirals, right? You want a country to run smoothly? Elect eight presidents at the same freaking time, right? It's just such a stupid, terrible idea. Anyway, if you want to check that Wrigley Field show out, it's pretty fucking good. It's available on all platforms. Or swing on over to diamondsnakej.poppy.com to hear that Wrigley show or any of the others in that uh, vault of archives there. In 1961, the Cubs had uh, 1956 bonus baby Jerry Kendall in the wing, moving up to the major league level. So, manager Bernie Hemsel. He asked Banks if he would mind moving to outfield to make room for Kendall. And even though he never played a minute in the outfield in his life, he accepted the challenge because he's Ernie Banks, not a 21st century athlete promoting his brand. He's Ernie Banks, the ultimate team player. So, of course, he moves to the outfield. And he was a fish out of water. Yeah, I said, you know, he was a fish in water when he was hitting, learning to hit. But, uh, you know, he was a fish out of water when he was, you know, they were putting him out there in outfield. And center fielder Richie Ashburn, he put in the work with Ernie. He made uh, 23 starts on left field from May to June and also got some PT over at first. I told you about his 424 consecutive game streak at the beginning of his career. Well, in 1961, he had a 717 game streak that evaporated after banging his left knee on the Candlestick Park brick wall. And he would finish out the rest of that uh, season back at the shortstop position. In 1962, Jerry Kendall was traded to Cleveland. Andre Rogers was now penciled in at shortstop for the Northsiders. And Ernie was now playing first base. And Banks would acknowledge in the beginning that his footwork was terrible at first base. He either felt like he had too many feet at times or not enough. On May 25th, 1962, 
Reds pitcher Mo Drabowski. He plunks Ernie with a headshot. Uh, never lost consciousness, but he did spend the next two days in a hospital. On that third day, Ernie returns to the confines and he hits three home runs versus the Milwaukee Braves. In the 1963 season, Ernie slumped badly. The whole year he was battling a form of subclinical mumps in which the disease remains in the blood without breaking out. Uh, he lost a lot of games because of a sore right knee and a heel bruise. So, 63 was kind of a lost season for Ernie. And the Cubs had actually made some improvements that season. But the 1962 Rookie of the Year, Ken Hubbs, a promising 22-year-old Cubs second baseman, he crashed a small plane into Utah Lake, killing him instantly. Even worse, the Cubs, they horribly miscalculated when they dealt eventual Hall of Fame speedster Lou Brock to their rival cards in a six-player deal. The Cubs tried to bolster the rotation of Ernie Brolio in return, but... Ernie had a bad arm, and it would be out of baseball within two years. And it's highly regarded as one of the worst trades ever in the history of baseball. In 1966, the Cubs hired Leo DeRocher to man the team. Now, that's a guy we've talked about a few times here at BKP, the Gas House Gang Show, the Branch Ricky Show. Uh, We've covered some ground with the lip here. By this time... He has piloted three other clubs to pennants, and he's captured the 1954 World Series title with the New York Giants. And many felt like his no-nonsense approach is exactly what the mediocre Cubs needed at this time to turn it all around. And even with this sunny disposition, Ernie Banks now in his 14th season, and the losings begin to wear down Banks, and he accepted Leo with open arms, even though Ernie seemed to be in a good frame of mind about the club's newfound road out of mediocrity. Cubs broadcaster Jack Brickhouse once said, Leo disliked Ernie from day one, and many said it was because Ernie was just too big. Hall of Fame pitcher Fergie Jenkins, he said he always remembers those two feuding. Leo was always trying to give Ernie's job away. Every spring he would give it to John Bocabella, or George Altman, or Willie Smith or Lee Thomas. And every year, Ernie would win it back. He was always going into spring training, someone had his job, and then Ernie would go out and win it back. Ironically, Banks was named a player coach during the spring training of 1967. And even though tensions continued between the Lip and Mr. Cub, the Cubs finished third in 1967 and in 1968. Although, you know, it was a distant third both of those years. The, the Cubs' losing culture was it was beginning to diminish with the returns of Glenn Beckert at second, Don Kessinger at short, as well as Randy Hundley, a career, I mean, I'm sorry, a catcher who came over from San Francisco. That pitching staff was led by Fergie Jenkins, who would win 20 more games six years in a row for the Cubs. Banks' batting average at fell in 68, but he still managed to slug 32 home runs. In 1969, the AL and NL split into divisions for the first time in baseball history. The Cubs were placed in the NL East, and many thought for sure they would end that postseason drought. Fergie, 
Bill Hands, they both won 20 games and they anchored that Chicago staff. Santo, Williams, Banks, they combined for 73 home runs and 324 RBIs in 1969. Ernie Banks caught up in the excitement of that 69 season. First quipped his trademark saying, let's play till. The Cubs were set to play a game in 100 degree heat and Ernie looking to motivate and inspire the boys. He uttered the phrase and sports writer Jimmy Enright reported it and credit Banks with one of the greatest baseball quotes from the 20th century. At the end of August, that 1969 season, the Chicago Cubs, they hold a four and a half game lead over the Mets. An early September doubleheader featured Bergie and Hands from the Cubs versus Seaver and Kuzman on the Mets. And the Mets took both games, slicing the Cubs' lead down to a half game. The Cubs, they would never recover after those two games. They went 8-12 and for the rest of the season. Conversely, the Mets got white hot going 18-5 and down a stretch, winning the division pennant by eight games and eventually the World Series. The Cubs were horseshit down the stretch in 69. But it should never be forgotten just how hot the Mets got. And it didn't stop until they put the heavily favored Baltimore Orioles in their place during the 1969 World Series. As the 1970 season commences, uh, Banks was sitting on home run number 497, just three shy of the milestone 500. But the Cubs' first baseman and icon is now in the unfamiliar role, serving as a first base backup to Jim Hickman. His at-bats become less frequent, and his power stats were diminishing because of it. On May 12th, 1970, Ernie Banks walks to the plate in the second inning of a game between the Cubs and the Braves. Ernie would take an inside 1-1 fastball in on the hands from Braves hurler Pat Jarvis and deposit it into the left field bleachers. And with that blast, Ernie Banks became just the ninth player in baseball history to drop 500 dogs. Jarvis fires away. That's the fly ball. He's the left side. Back. That's it. That's it. Hi. He did it. Ernie Banks got number 500. A line drive shot into the seats and left. The ball tossed to the bullpen. Everybody on your feet. This is it. Woo! Ernie Banks off Pat Jarvis, May 12, 1970. Second inning against the Atlanta Braves. And after rounding the bases, first of all, Chicago always has a play-by-play booth just full of homers. The wee! I mean, it's just crazy. (laughs) I mean, Harry Carey, Harrelson, uh, Brickhouse, uh, you know, God bless them. It's it's just funny, man. They have the biggest homers in Chicago uh, broadcast booths. But... Yeah, I just, I love that. Whee! <laughs> it's just too much, man. After rounding the bases, 
Uh, I already thought about how the pitchers uh, had jammed him because of his slower bat at his age. He thought about his mother and his father. He thought about all the great people in the Cubs organization that had helped him along the way. And most importantly, he thought about all those great Cubs fans who came out all those years to cheer him and the team no matter the outcome. The Cubs, they made a go of it again in 1970, trailing the Pirates by a mere game and a half on September 19th. But a 4-second 7 record to close out the season ended any Cub chance for the postseason. For the first time in any big Cubs game or series, DeRocher used Banks as a reserve player. In fact, Leo pinched Banks with Jim Hickman, a right-handed batter just like Ernie, to face a southpaw pitcher. And Hickman said it was the hardest baseball order he ever had to carry out. To him, it felt disrespectful on Leo's part. But Ernie, with his glass-half-full, optimistic approach, never said a bad word about Leo. After the conclusion of the 1971 season, Mr. Cub called it a career. He was now 40 years old and a 19-year vet of the major leagues. In 1977, his first year of eligibility, Ernie Banks was forever enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. He, Calvin Jr., and Hannes Wagner were the selected shortstops for the All-Century team in 1999. Banks spent the next two decades serving in some capacity for his beloved Cubs. In 1973 and 1974, he served as a first-base coach. In 1978, he was named to the Cubs' board of directors. And one of the things I found interesting is that in 1967, while he's still playing baseball, he bought a Ford automobile dealership, becoming just the second black person in America to own a car dealership. He also served on the board of Chicago Transit Authority in 1969, and he owned his own sports marketing firm and was employed by World Van Lines for more than 20 years. In 1982, the Cubs retired his number, 14. On opening day, the team unveiled a beautiful statue of the beloved icon outside of Wrigley. In 2013, Ernie received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Obama at the White House. And one thing about Banks that I love, dude was always prepared. He lived a very relaxed life after baseball, unlike many other athletes. And he served as a sports ambassador of sorts for baseball. During the 1960s, P.K. Wrigley offered Ernie the chance to invest in trust funds. Ernie accepted, and he put half of his salary that year into the fund. So, when Ernie turned 55 years old, he was eligible to cash in over $4 million in trust funds that Wrigley had laid out for him. And he was the only player to take Wrigley up on that advice. He lived the rest of his life out rather comfortably, unlike many other post-retirement athletes. He and his wife, Liz, they moved out to SoCal. He loved playing golf with his twin sons, Joey and Jerry. And he enjoyed visiting his daughter, uh, Chef Jan Banks, and he loved tasting her delicious cuisine. Ernie loved life. That's his legacy. He lived it to the fullest and... He was forever loyal to his team. On January 23rd, 2015, which the release date of this show 
is January 23rd, 2023. So, eight years ago today, Ernie suffered a massive heart attack and died at the age of 83. Ironically, his beloved team, the Chicago Cubs, they would finally win that elusive World Series championship a season later. And it was kind of sad for me to think of Mr. Cub missing that moment. But I know somewhere uh, they were watching Chris Bryant over Anthony Rizzo for the final out of the 2016 World Series versus Cleveland. And he and Santo were smiling and crying in their beer somewhere. And that intro in the beginning, that was Eddie Vedder, the great Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. And he wrote that song for Ernie Banks. And I just think it's a great song. Unfortunately, Ernie wasn't around to see it, but we know he saw it. And Eddie Vedder approached him. He called it Ernie. Your beloved Cubs, they finally did go all the way. And folks, I think that's where I'm going to wrap this puppy up. But before I do, let's take a look at uh, this one-of-a-kind ball player through his indelible stats here. Let's see. Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub. Boy, January 31st, 1931. So, a week from the show's release, we will celebrate what would have been his 92nd birthday posthumously. And today, January 23rd, 2023, it's the 8-year anniversary of his death. He was voted into the National Hall of Fame in 1977 on 83.8% of the ballots. 67.7 career wins above replacement. 19-year career, all with the Northside Cubs. He played in 2,528 games, mostly at shortstop first base, a little bit of left field action, 10,396 plate appearances, 1,305 runs scored, 2,583 hits, 407 doubles, 90 triples, 512 home runs. He was just a ninth player in baseball history to get 500. And he was only the third infielder at that time to reach that milestone. And that was to join the crowd of A. Slugger Jimmy Fox and Eddie Matthew of the Braves. And he and Eddie are actually tied with 412 blasts. It was the Cubs' record until Sammy Sosa surpassed him with 545 dongs. His 277 home runs had stood as a shortstop record until Cal Ripken Jr. passed him in 1993. 1,636 ribs, 50 stolen bases, 53 times caught stealing. And like Robert Roberts said, he swings in bad pitches. Banks struck out uh, 1,236 times. He only walked 763 times. 4,706 total bases. And a 274, 330, 830 slash, 830 OPS, and a 122 OPS plus. And Ernie, he still holds Cubs records in games, plate appearances, hits, RBI, total bases, extra base hits, back-to-back MVP, 1958-1959, 14 all-star appearances, one gold club. Man, what a ball player. And that, my Seabed audience, is the story of the late, great Mr. Cub, Ernie Banks. I want to thank you guys for joining me in my sandbox 
uh, building some sandcastles with me this week. I love doing that Ernie Banks bio. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed telling a story, thus adding it to our always growing collection of ballplayers. Uh, let's all keep Bando family. Let's keep them in our prayers as we say goodbye to Captain Sal with heavy hearts. You will be missed, and the baseball universe mourns your loss. The fundraising accounts will be open for one more week. Please send a dollar or more to Venmo at jake-robinson-134. Or the PayPal account is diamondsnakejake at gmail.com. We also have cups, coffee, mugs, keychains, all kinds of stuff. So hit me up. I'll tell you all about it. We appreciate the donations in this grassroots endeavor. And thank you. Thanks, bro. Getting a hold of me or my representatives for BKP is real easy. We have uh, an Instagram account. Backwards K-Pod is newly minted. It's not much going on in here, but we got plans to get in where you fit in. So you'll miss out on our first big idea for that room. I'm just saying, you're going to want to get into that, uh, that Instagram account. Also, you can find the show's Twitter page at back underscore K underscore podcast. The YouTube page is backwards K pod. But you can usually find me on Facebook in the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Facebook group page. I'm very interactive and I enjoy bantering with the fans. So come on in and get some. So, look, a lot of research went into earning this week, a lot of articles on the web. A whole lot of videos on YouTube. There are numerous newspapers and magazine articles from papers like the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Chicago American News, Chicago Daily Times, the New York Times, Sporting News, Newsday, etc., etc. Also, a book I found helpful was entitled Ernie Banks, uh, Mr. Cobb in the Summer of 69. That's by Phil Rogers. It's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it if you're interested in learning more about Ernie Banks. And I, I think that about covers it with the slip. I got you. With the swift blow from the samurai sword. I uh, chopped yet another head off our baseball hydra only to see two more baseball topics grow in its place. With Mr. Cub, Ernie Banks getting smaller and smaller in my rearview mirror, I now turn my attention to the pioneer, the color line breaker, the one and only Jackie Robinson, a true American patriot. He changed the game. He changed the world forever. And next week, we honor him on his birthday. But look, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch looking bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillebrand told me in our one-on-one interview, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. I love you, Steve Heads. See you next week.